this episode of the podcast is brought to you by Anchor. If you don't know what Anchor is and you're thinking about starting a podcast, you should probably find out what Anchor is because Anchor is a free way to host your podcasts. It also gives you creation tools like the ability to record yourself, record with other people, edit as well, and do it from your phone or your computer. You don't need to go buy fancy tools to start. You can start with Anchor. And you can hit the nice distribute button, and it's going to send it out to all the places you want it to be, like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and more. In addition to that, you can make money from your podcast with no basic listenership. In other words, if you only have 10 people because you're just starting, you can still monetize that. It's really hard to find a better place to start. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm and get started on the crazy podcast journey. So I've been noticing this, this bad behavior that's going on with my phone right now. I have a... You know, I've been playing around with these new widgets for the iPhone. For the most part, I love it. I love that app library on the right-hand side because, uh, I don't know, like within like four days, I just got used to going there and looking for things instead of cluttering up the home screen. So I've been putting stuff on the main, you know, I have one page of my phone. I've just been putting stuff there for information that I want to see, you know, like, the featured photos of the day, I I like that. I like seeing that pop up and letting it do that for me. It's really transformed my relationship with my phone in some very positive ways. But for the bottom two rows of that page, what I've been using is the Siri suggestion. And the Siri suggestion, there's many widgets for it. I think there's like five. This one gives me eight apps. And the apps change throughout the day because it watches my behavior and decides which apps I might want to use. So instead of putting stationary apps on my home screen, other than my dock, I've been putting that there, which for the most part, I love. It's actually, I noticed today how good it was. In walking past Starbucks, I've only, in the, in the past two weeks, I've been to Starbucks twice to actually purchase something and not just walking by. And in those two visits, my phone figured out that when I get to a certain location closer to Starbucks, instead of when I'm just walking by it, that I'm probably going to need the Starbucks app. So it popped it up in those two rows. And I saw it today and I was like, oh, I was actually, I flipped to the app library to go get it. And then my brain was like, wait a minute, did you notice that was on the homepage? And I went back and sure enough, it was there. But here's where the problem is. Two apps that pop up throughout my day in those little eight app suggestions are Twitter and Instagram. And every time I, lately, every time I open up Twitter, I open it up and I start doing something and I realize I don't want to be here. I don't want, I don't want to open this door. Because every time, you know, all the stuff that's going on right now. If you open Twitter, all of a sudden, all of that 
floods into your day. So I could be in a reasonably good mood and then open it up and see like two tweets and be like. (laughs) So now when I open the app, I think like, I don't want to be here because it's, it's, it's not a good experience for me. And then Instagram, I'll open Instagram and I'll, I'll go like this. I'll start to flip. I just said, I'll go like this. Like you can see what I'm doing. I will start to flip, you know, as we do with the feed. And then I just get terribly bored. Something about just looking at images. Maybe I'm following too many people. I don't know. I just rarely find it interesting. And I never watch stories. So I'm being recommended these apps throughout the day. I don't really want to spend much time in them. But there's this muscle memory. So as this pops them up onto the home screen for me, I'll find myself at times during the day, you know, you probably do it yourself. There's that little minute, you know, that little lull in the day, that little second of pause where something's not going on and you bloop, you pop into one of them. And so what happens with me is all without thinking about it, bloop, pop into one and then go, whoa, wait, 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 reverse, reverse engines. Get out of here. Get back. Get back. And then I'll start to do something else. And then bloop, I'll pop into the other one without realizing it. And then, whoa, all right, back, 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 back. And this will happen 10, 12 times a day. And the problem is this algorithm that's deciding what apps I might want and might need is seeing me pop into these things like 10 times a day. And it's going, oh. We're doing a good job. <laughs> we put it there and he opened it. So this is obviously something he wants there. Now, now there's not, this is not a hopeless situation. You know, obviously I could just take the widget off there, but then I'd be losing the advantage of, you know, like the Starbucks app popping up when I want, but Apple was smart. They did build to build something in that. If you go into this, into the widget suggestion. Wow, I'm having trouble with the words right now, aren't I? So many of the things that we're talking about right now are just kind of like, they're really just like made up words. (laughs) You know, like I'm trying to remember that I'm using the right word for the thing that I'm doing. But if you hold down on one of these apps, instead of getting the normal pop-up menu that you would get for a normal app that you put on your home screen that says, you know, like delete and all this stuff, What you get is, I think it's like three options. And one of the options is don't suggest this one. So you can, and I will probably after I finish recording this, go in and say, don't, don't suggest Twitter. Don't suggest Instagram. Then I can cut that behavior out. But this whole problem does beg the question. Is this a a good long-term plan for intentional use of the phone? And I don't mean the removing of the suggestion of specific apps. I mean, suggesting apps to people when you think they want them. Because what it seems like is you can easily, as proven by my social media points, get into a loop where you are suggesting things to people and because you're suggesting them to them, they will accidentally, subconsciously open them, which will continue to reaffirm that those apps need to be there 
And so instead of actually presenting the apps to people that they might need, your or Apple is creating a situation where they are not meaning to, but accidentally dictating what apps will be on your screen. This is, it's just, I just thought it was very, a very interesting thing to think about because we think about algorithms as complex things, but certain behaviors become self-reciprocating cycles. And if you don't start to build those type of things into not only your human behavior, but into the algorithms, then you could very easily use algorithms to, instead of suggest, to dictate. And not through any meaningful purpose. That the algorithm itself can accidentally create a dictatorial relationship with the user. I hope I'm explaining that right. I'm not an expert on this stuff. It's just something that I was screwing around with. You guessed it on my phone before I turn on this microphone. So that's the way these these uh, Patreon extras work, isn't it? <laughs> just talk about whatever the hell comes out of my mouth. And I'm drinking coffee, so it could be be very interesting. You know, uh, one thing I did notice, I'm sure if you're listening to this, then you are aware that yesterday I did an episode, first episode with the new name in 30 episodes to uh, have on a guest. And the guest was Lamb, my old buddy Lamb. And what I found really interesting was in doing the episode and then going through and editing and listening to it, I actually heard a difference in myself in the episode. I noticed, I I can't put my finger on it in a way to actually describe it to you, but I noticed a difference. I noticed a freedom in that that I hadn't heard before. And I have edited probably close to 300 episodes of myself. And about half of those were conversations with Lamb. So I'm very familiar with what my conversation style is like and what my talking style is like. And I noticed something very different in yesterday's conversation in a very good way. And I'm not ready to completely chalk it up to it, but I am moving in the direction of saying that what I heard might be because of these daily episodes. If you remember back to probably the first two or three episodes, maybe in the first three episodes, I said the reason I wanted to do this every day is because I didn't want to have to rely on my notes. I didn't want to have to rely on something to feel comfortable recording. I wanted to test myself. I wanted to put myself through a trial of being able to turn on the microphone and go and have absolutely nothing prepared. Because I felt like put into other situations other than the, oh my God, I have nothing prepared. Can I record? I felt that it would give me freedom within the episode. I felt that it would give me a comfort. You know, like when you do something a thousand times 
It just becomes second nature. It becomes muscle memory. You don't think about it. Like, how many times do you think about the exact process that you're using your towel to dry off your body when you get out of the shower? You're not thinking about it. You're just doing it. And I'm pretty sure that most of us don't ever get done with doing that and go, wow, I completely lost control. My leg is still soaking wet. Now, for the most part, we don't think about toweling ourselves off. And for the most part, we leave the bathroom dry. So if I could make recording an episode, sitting in front of this microphone, talking into something like that, if I can make it a muscle memory, then I felt like I could actually achieve something that I wasn't able to achieve when I was thinking so much about the actual process. I know I'm rehashing some stuff here. But I heard that last night. I heard it in, in, in some ways. I heard it in the way that the conversation would shift. Instead of trying, maybe as I would have before, to pull the conversation back to where I was, I was able to just go with it. And this is stuff that's normal in normal life, right? If you have a conversation with a friend, for the most part, unless you are a megalomaniacal asshole, you go with the conversation. You go with the flow. It moves. It changes. There's no linear progress to it. No purposeful linear progress to it. But that changes for most of us when we get in front of a microphone, especially when we're going to have to edit that episode and we are going to have to publish it, that gets into our head and it turns off that natural, that natural state. So I, I'm, I'm thinking if I'm right, or if I continue with it, continue with this, that natural state will come back. And I, you know, let's, let's talk a little bit about that. What is that natural state? Part of it, it's obviously not all of it. Part of it is it's a removal of fear. It's a removal of the critic. You know, like I've, I misspoke a word right there. I stumbled across a word and had to finish saying the word. Or like there, I couldn't figure out the rest of that sentence, so I had to pause to figure out the next word. Well, if your critic in your head is overactive, then you are either going to re-say those things so you can cut out the time that you messed up before, or it's just going to be like a bug in your head. It's like, oh, you are fucking this up right now. So if you can make something so natural and mundane that you do it every day and you just don't have to think about it like that, then you don't worry about those things. And those just become natural and normal things. And what I've noticed, there is a problem. I mean, there's a there's a fear there that over over time, not worrying about speaking correctly when being recorded could lead to you just being an incoherent idiot. But what I've noticed, especially for me, because I'm a one-man production company, you know, like I record it, I'm the host, and I edit. And I usually edit within an hour of recording. So what I've noticed is that, in fact, that doesn't happen. That fear doesn't happen. That naturally, over time, you just get better at speaking. I've mentioned before, 
that I do less ums than I used to. I didn't make a purposeful effort to not um, just the process of talking in front of a microphone more and the process of having to edit out my ums over time, my brain just got better at it. It's not perfect. I'm probably a minute or two minutes away from doing an um. (laughs) But before, oh man, if you go back to the first year, between Lamb and I, there would probably be close to a hundred ums in an episode. You know, 50 one way, 50 the other way. Just a lot of ums. But I mean, that's the, but that's kind of the fun part about this whole experiment. You know, I should, I, I like calling it an experiment, but also I could be calling this a challenge. I'm challenging myself to do this. And I have to say, it's going a lot better. And when I challenge myself to do 100 vlogs, I'm not 100 vlogs, 200 daily vlogs, just because I, I don't feel fried by this. That was, I made it through 200 days on sheer willpower. Most days I didn't even know what day it was. This just feels natural, like I'm talking to friends. But you know what, actually, let's go back to social media for a second. Another reason that I don't want to be on Twitter is remember when I talked about writing and I said that if you tell people about your your creative ideas before you actually start to make them, that oftentimes you can ruin the momentum. I, I think I referred to it as a balloon. So you have pressure that builds up on an idea and then it gets to a critical mass. And when it gets to that critical mass, then it, it forces you as a creative person, to make something. Like, oh, I've been thinking about this story for a month. And I keep adding little things to it in my mind. I got to just sit down. I got to get this thing out. I just got to sit down and write it. And then you do. And then you have a rough draft. And once you have a rough draft, you're good to go. Because now you have something tangible in the world. Obviously, it's not easy after that point. But the easiest, sorry, but the hardest transition is from the thoughts in your head to the physical words on paper. If you can get through that, then you're doing good. You've done the hardest part. There's still a lot of hard things to come, but you've done the hardest part. But if you continually, let me, let's, let's use a tangible example here. Say I had an idea for a space detective. And the space detective was going to be a mold. (laughs) Like, you know, like, like a blob, but a mold. And, and whatever, you know, like there doesn't have to be more to that. I'm not going to sit here and make up a, a decent story idea, but say that's my idea. And the more I think about it, I start thinking about it. I'm like, you know, Oh, that'll be good because everything else has been bipedal. We always assume aliens are bipedal, but in reality, the chances of aliens being humanoid shaped, there's no, no statistic to prove that. And, you know, then I can have him, he can do things like he can slide under doors and all this. And I just keep thinking about that and thinking, I'm building this momentum. I'm moving towards that critical point where this thing is going to 
is going to become something. Even I mean, this is a ridiculous idea, but even right there, just thinking a little bit more about it and making making up excuses to write this f- fake story I just made up right now. Even that little bit of time, I actually I could feel momentum building right there. Where I was like, well, I started to think in my head while I was talking right there. Wouldn't it be funny if I actually wrote that story? That's the power of the momentum. But if I go and I'm talking to someone, I go, hey, you know what? I got to tell you, I got this story. It's about a space detective. He's a mold. He's not bipedal. He can slide under doors. You can do all kinds of crazy things with his his clothing because he doesn't actually have to wear clothing because he can control the way he shapes his body. So he's a master of disguise. What's happening is that balloon, that momentum is going from going bigger and it's going like letting air out of a tire. So every time you tell somebody, the momentum shrinks and stuff grows. And if you tell enough people that all the air of the idea goes out and you're no longer interested in actually making that a reality because you get the satisfaction from telling people about this idea. It's not the same satisfaction, but you somehow use that equity. And I'm starting to feel that way about social media. And I know that I tend to go in waves with social media. I will be against it for a while, and then I will love it and be into it for a while and then be against it. Uh, This is not an absolutist opinion. This is just how I'm feeling right now. In a month, I might be feeling the opposite. But right now, what I'm feeling, and I need to listen to this, is that what I do on Twitter is letting air out of my balloon. So I can't continue to let air out of my balloon. I'm not sure what that's going to mean. If it means that just for a while, I'm not going to post. Or if it means I just need to find the right things that are okay for me to post that don't let air out of my balloon or my tire. This is the ridiculous kind of shit that I think that most creators now, modern creators, think about and have to think about, but nobody out there is admitting that they think about this stuff or that they have to think about this stuff. Because it's embarrassing a little bit, right? You want to present the you want to present the view of yourself of someone who's in control and knows what they're doing. But these tools and these these websites and all of this stuff, still we have no idea what we're doing. This is all still so new. So to claim that you're some freaking guru master, no, you found, maybe you did find something that works, but in a month, in a year you'll probably be viewed as a one-trick pony because you're going to bank on that. I always think it's better to be in the I'm uncomfortable but trying position. It sucks to be uncomfortable, but I think it leaves you more flexible in the long run. Okay, enough of that. And one other thing I want to talk about. I'm going to try to, uh, I'm going to, try to bring in, you know, like a, Stuff like the other night. And I watched that I, Tonya movie. I talked about it. I was just reading something before. Let's talk a little bit about what I was reading. So it's actually quite funny <laughs> that I was talking about uh, Space Alien right there. 
know, the blob detective, mold detective, because I didn't, I didn't actually think about that. But it's funny because when I was reading was Communion, which is a book about extraterrestrials. Now, this is not theoretically, not a fictional book. I'm not going to tell you all about the book, but it's essentially the story of someone. It is, it's somebody who says they're telling a story of their paranormal experiences. It's a pretty famous book. You might not remember it by the name, but if you know what a gray alien looks like, the face, you know, the kind of big top of the head and the big black eyes and the tiny little slit mouth, the reason you probably know that is because of the cover of this book from the 80s, because that was what was on the cover. Although the skin of the alien on the cover of the book Communion was not gray. It was pinkish. So the gray thing has kind of developed over time, I think, into the popular consciousness. But I noticed something in this book. I noticed something that's kind of appropriate to what's going on in the world in some way, or at least what's going on in the United States. So there's a part in this book. I mean, I'm only within the first 50 pages of this book. There's part where he's talking about this incident that happened at his cabin. I'm not going to go into a ton of details, but essentially the story is that in the middle of the night, there was this blue glowing light that filled the house. And the way Whitley tells it is he had just turned out the light after reading to go to sleep, and then this happened. And he saw it, and then his wife cried out, and then he heard his son down the hall cry out, And he went to go down the hallway to take care of his son. And they had some guests at the cabin staying with them, and they were in a guest room. And as he's going down the hallway, the guest room and the son's room were next door to each other. He ran into Jacques, who was one of his house guests. He ran into him in the hallway and told him everything was fine and that he should go back to bed. Okay? Later on, he starts to think about this incident. A lot of some of what I just described there, he didn't really remember at first, came back to him over time. So he calls Jacques on the phone and he asks Jacques to tell him what he remembers without telling him anything that Whitley himself remembers. He asks Jacques, What do you remember from that night? And he says, You know, he remembers the blue light. And one of the details I forgot to mention was uh, Whitley and his wife, Anne, had their bedroom door open. And the son had left the door open on their son, obviously, so they can hear him. That's why both the doors are open. But the guests were in their bed, in that spare bedroom with the door closed. So Shock says, you know, they're in the room. This, and he says, and there was this blue light. He's like, and then I heard you in the hallway. And you talk to me through the door. So uh, Jacques is married to Annie, which is separate than Anne, which is Whitley's wife. And Annie was the other person that was in the in the guest room that night. So Whitley asked to talk to Annie after Jacques, and he asked Annie the same question. And her story is a little bit different, 
But one thing that she says is that Whitley talked to them through the door. So what I found interesting about this is it's maybe a minor contradiction, but I think it's actually a pretty glaring contradiction in the sense that if you remember running into someone in the hallway, but he remembers staying in the room behind a closed door and his wife, who was with him, remembers the same, then you have to call into question how much you actually yourself are remembering accurately from that night. If you are remembering a person physically being in front of you that wasn't there, then there's quite possible, it's quite possible that you were maybe sleepwalking or that you were in a hypnagogic state of some sort. Whenever I read these kind of books, I always look for those little those little snags because those little snags they they tell a lot and if you don't pay attention to those little snags and what happens is you breeze over them and when you breeze over them what happens then is that you believe and you take everything that's being presented as true which is not i don't know whether what happened to whitley's streber is true or not i'm not i'm not a debunker Actually, in all honesty, I I hope to some degree some of these things are true. I like the idea of living in a world where magical and mystical things can happen. I like that. So I am not on some mission to debunk all of it. But I do think that it's there's a large percentage of people that write books like this simply to make money. Or simply to get attention, simply to become mildly famous in a small community. But even all of that taken out of it, no matter what, no matter what we read, whether it is the news, whether it is Twitter, whether it is books, we should be vetting information. We should be looking for inconsistencies. We should be looking for logical flaws, especially as we move forward, especially as we move further and further into what people like to call the post-truth world. The more involved that the internet is in our lives, the more we have to question what is presented as truth and what is presented as a lie, because they're not so cut and dry. So let let me give you another example here from the same book. One of the excuses, so basically Whitney, Whitley, Whitney, Whitley starts going through all the possible things for what the blue light could have been. He says, well, it couldn't have been cars from the road below because the we are up seven feet from the road. So the headlights can't shine up at an angle like that from where the road is. And it couldn't be the, the lights from the neighbor's house because... Even in the daytime, I can't see their house because there are so many trees between us and them. And he starts going through these things, knocking these things off the list, right? It can't be this. It can't be this. And then he says, he says, and, and helicopter. Well, that's, that's out of the question. I talked to a pilot and the pilot said, forget aircraft. And that's where I had the problem. That's where I had the problem. You talked to one pilot 
And because one pilot said it couldn't have been aircraft, therefore it is out of the question. How do we know that this pilot is not an idiot? How do we know that this pilot is not a lunatic? How do we know this pilot is not just plain wrong? We don't trust just one person, even if they are an expert. You know, being able to fly a plane makes someone an expert on aircraft more than Whitley Strieber or me. But think about that now that I've used the word expert. Just because you can fly a plane, does that make you an expert? Or are there people who can fly planes that are more expert than the others? So these are very important things to think. Just because someone's a pilot doesn't mean that what they say closes the door on everything. I bet you if you ask a pilot, what's the, what's the best route to fly from Las Vegas to Las Cruces, New Mexico? And then you ask another pilot the same question, and you ask another pilot the same question, and you ask another pilot the same question, you probably would get different answers, maybe even from each of them. Because one person does not define all of the truth of that matter. Because one pilot says that it can't be aircraft doesn't mean that's true. It doesn't mean that every other pilot would agree with them. This is my example always with conspiracy and, so, and, and with agreement. Is take five people, put them in a room and ask them what they want for lunch. And see how long it takes for you to get five people to agree on just what they want to eat. So the problem with this type of thinking is what this type of thinking does is it passes something off to you as verified when it's not in fact verified. And it slides it past you in a casual way because literally this is two sentences in the book. It's very fast. So what, what he's done, and I, I'm not saying this, no, he's doing this on purpose, but what he's done here is he's gone, okay, there was a blue light. Well, it couldn't be, couldn't be cars. Check that off. It couldn't be the neighbor's house. Check that off. It couldn't be helicopter. Check that off. It couldn't be aircraft at all. Check that off. Therefore, it must be aliens. So if you if you want to bring people to an outrageous opinion, but you want it to feel logical, first you have to eliminate every other thing. Because if something's outrageous, people will always lean towards a logical alternative. But if you convince them that you've gone through that and that you've removed all logical possibilities, then the illogical is the only thing left. After all, that's the famous Sherlock Holmes quote. Once you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, no matter how improbable, must be the truth. And that's what's that's that's what logic is trying to be employed here, except the fact that these things haven't actually been eliminated. It's being passed off as they have been. Like, well, it couldn't be an aircraft because I talked to one pilot. And then we're just supposed to, oh, okay, well, you talked to a pilot, so therefore that must be true. No. Now, if you said, I talked to a pilot, I called all of the local airports, I looked at the flight plans, nothing was flying over the time. I called the Air Force Base nearby. They didn't have anything in the air. Now we're getting a little bit closer. I talked to a few other pilots and they said it was impossible as well. Now maybe it is out of the question. 
But to say just like I talked to some guy and he was a pilot and he said, no way, doesn't mean, it doesn't mean shit. So it's a logical fallacy. So to be able to get to that final conclusion, you have to eliminate this one, but you have not eliminated. Therefore, it is still a possibility. This is how conspiracy theories get blown out of proportion. This is how people buy into these type of things. And not even this type of things, because overall, this is fairly harmless compared to QAnon. But this is how people buy into QAnon. Well, he says he is an he's a he is a government insider. Therefore, this is true. Okay. Well, you're passing off. You you were saying that he is a government insider because he says he is. There's no there's there's zero proof in that. That's a that's a a reason that gives the reason itself as the answer. Why is he an expert? Because he says he's an expert. Well, why should I trust him? Because he's an expert. But how do I know he's an expert? Because he says he's an expert. You understand what I'm saying? It's chasing its own tail. And the way you pass things, these things off on people is by imitating logic and using casual... You, know, you bury it into a list. You do it casually, you know? For example, in this one, you know, like we went outside and we tested different ways to make this light. This is where he starts. And he says, and then, you know, this window couldn't be because this window is eight feet from the from the road and the, where the location of the road is. The lights couldn't shine up. It's very detailed. But by the time he gets to this, he says, couldn't be that because I've talked to a guy who was a pilot. And he says, aircraft out of the question. Next paragraph. That's it. So I think it's, I don't know. It's just, it's really important to look at what's being presented before you swallow it. This is one of the reasons why it's important to not only read slowly and to read things multiple times. Because we get wrapped up the first time and you might not see the snags even if you read slow but i can guarantee you if you read something once and you only read it fast and maybe you even skim it you're number one not going to understand it very well and number two you're probably going to believe a lot more of the things that you shouldn't believe from it there's some research that they've done recently that says if you present information to people that's wrong, that they have a higher percentage chance of believing it just because they were exposed to it. Because we remember it. We remember it and it lives with us, but then over time it goes from being something that we remember being not true as to something we believe to be true. This is something I've heard about and in other cases, when they talked about one of the problems with intermixing fictional scenes with actual footage of real documentary, real life. If you can, if you have make a movie and you intersperse those two, oftentimes what happens is people in their memory will mix the two. So they will end up walking away with false memories, thinking that things that's remembering things that happened in the fictional sections 
as being part of the documentary sections. Scary. Scary shit. All right. That's all I got. That's enough. Welcome back to school, kids. Is it? Is that what it is? I'm the school teacher tonight instead of the preacher? I guess. Whatever. I'm just trying to entertain you. Hopefully something in there was worth your ear time. Is that a phrase? Is that, a, is that something we actually say? Ear time? Well, while I have your ears, let me just remind you that I am uh, I'm on Twitter as The Real Chat Hall. You can follow me there, even though I talk shit about Twitter about 15 minutes ago in this episode. <laughs> you can also support me on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Chad Hall. I'm, I'm recording every day. Some of the stuff makes it to public feed. Some of it stays there for Patreon. So if you want more, that's where more is. There's also 